following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Good morning, church. Man, can we just give God some praise this morning? I don't know about you, but wow, just encounter the glory of His presence this morning. It's good to be in God's house. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 as we start our study here on the Lord's Prayer, a prayer for the good life. You know, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, I decided to put this to the test a while back, all right? So we were getting ready to go on a staff outing at a previous church. Several people wanted to go golfing. Now, mind you, I hadn't been on a golf course since I was a kid, but I thought, why not? I mean, I can hit a ball with a bat, right? So replace the bat with a ball, I mean, with a, with a club. We're fine, same difference, right? Plus, you know, I was a youth pastor at the time, so you know I'm semi-decent at putt-putt, right? So how hard could this be, right? Let's go. So... My good friend Doug Mize, who's pastor at Greer First Baptist now, he, uh, he was trying to sell his father-in-law's golf clubs. He's like, Ricky, you can borrow these, you can use these as we go out golfing, give them a try, see if you want to buy them. So we go on this staff outing, Doug and I are on this, we're in the same group, he's giving me tips along the way, you know, and at first, I'm trying really, really hard to follow them, alright, but you know, I'm not going to lie, the first couple attempts, they weren't all that great, alright, but you know... If you know Doug, he's like Captain Encourager, so he just keeps going. He's like, you good, man. You're fine. You're going to get the hang of it. It's going to be good, right? So I keep trying. I keep going hard. And there is some improvement, emphasis on the sum, all right? But Doug just keeps encouraging me over the next several holes. But listen, if there is a prize or award for getting your golf ball in the craziest places, I should get it, okay? I mean, you name it, from ponds and trees, sand, bushes, I mean, you name it. If you didn't want your ball to land there, that's where my golf ball would land, okay? But soon enough, Doug's words of encouragement, I notice, just become silent pats on the back. (laughs) Simple, it's going to be okay, right? By the end, we're just trying to get through it. We're riding around in this golf cart. We're not even saying a word, all right? So I don't even know what my score ended up being. It was probably, they probably stopped keeping track, but I know it was bad, y'all. Like a toddler orangutan could have probably done better than me, all right? But you know, I'm like, well, you know, nobody goes pro on their first try with these things, right? So I'll just work on this before our next staff outing. It'll be fine. So I go up to Doug and I'm like, hey, Doug, how much did you say you wanted for those clubs? And he goes, Ricky, you don't need to buy these clubs. And I said, no, man, I'm serious. I'm going to work on this. I'm serious. I'm, I'm seriously thinking about getting these. He goes, and I'm seriously telling you, I'm not selling you these clubs. Like, I couldn't in good conscience do that, right? And you know, it was true. That probably would not have been my best investment in life. The Lord has blessed me with much, but he totally snubbed me when it came to athletic ability, okay? So fair warning to all you sports enthusiasts out there. If if you want to have fun, I'm happy to be on your team. But if you want to win, you're better off with the baby orangutan, all right? Because it's too late for this old dog to learn any new athletic tricks. But you know what? I do love learning new things. And I hope that never changes. But as someone who recently turned another year older, I got to wondering what I should expect to happen to my learning ability as I approach old age. Now that I'm an old man in my 40s, all right? So I consulted the National Institute on aging. Did you know there was such a thing? And I was informed that while I can expect some changes in my cognitive abilities as I age, I should be relieved to know that, quote, older adults can still learn new skills. They said, you can even, you can even form new memories. I was like, how bad is this going to get? I got to worry about forming memories? 
However, they warned as a person gets older, changes occur in all parts of the body, including the brain. Apparently, blood flow decreases to the brain. Neurons don't always work as effectively. Perhaps most alarming, they said, certain parts of the brain shrink, shrink. Especially, it says, those important to learning and other complex mental activities. Therefore, they say we Older folks should expect, quote, not to do as well as younger individuals on complex memory or learning tests. Nevertheless, they say, if given enough time to learn a new task, we can usually still perform just as well. Now, I don't know about y'all, but there wasn't a whole lot of good news in those stats. But the optimist in me is holding on to that last statement, given enough time. We usually perform just as well. It's like, so you're saying there's a chance, right? Man, that gives me hope that even in my old age, as someone who wants to keep growing and stretching and learning, this old dog can still learn some new tricks, just maybe not in the golf department, right? But I mean, if Moses was 80 years old when God used him to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, wow, then that means I don't think he's done with any of us yet, amen? Because it's really just a mindset, isn't it? Maybe it's not so much that we can't learn new things. It's just that we've grown complacent in what we already know. But do you know that what I love about following Jesus? Man, he never lets us just stay put. He's always calling us deeper. He's always leading us to that next step. As Pastor Max Lucado put it, he said, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you there. You know what that means? You're never too far along in life that you can't change. By the grace of God, this old dog can learn new tricks because this old dog can be made new. You know, as Jesus has been calling us into the good life, showing us the path to the kingdom of heaven, leading us into a greater and genuine righteousness, I'm so thankful he didn't just leave it to us to figure it all out on our own. He didn't just drop truth bombs and then peace out on us. No, he came to bring that peace to us, to show us the way to shalom. He didn't just tell us about the good life we've been missing out on. No, he shows us the secret to the good life. See, if we want to experience the good life, we need to be connected to the source of the good life. And that's why right at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus placed its most important piece. He calls us to pray. Indeed, Jesus shows us the key to the good life that he's been talking about, the key to experiencing shalom, the key to growing in righteousness, of aligning your heart with the heart of God. He says it is genuine, honest to goodness, pure in heart prayer. You know, I've met a lot of Christians in my life, but I've never met a Christian who didn't see the value of prayer. Indeed, most Christians would say they want to pray. They know they should pray more, but for many of them, they just feel inadequate to pray. They feel like they're bad at it. They want a better prayer life. They just don't always know how to go about it. And let's be real, there's a lot working against us. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, even says that American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. He says, we're so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments and production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. So it feels useless. It feels as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, get to work. Moreover, he says, when we aren't working, we're used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, cell phones, they make free time as busy as work. 
When we do slow down, we slip into a stupor, exhausted by the pace of life. We veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. Maybe you can relate to that. Yeah, you want to pray, but it just feels so hard to focus your mind to pray. But you know what? The distractions may have looked different in the first century when Jesus first gave this sermon. But people struggled with praying back then, too. That's why I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't just call us to pray. Again, he showed us how to pray. That means by his grace, every single one of us can learn to pray, to focus our mind to pray. Each of us can grow in our prayer life. Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says this. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, we often call this the Lord's Prayer, but as others have noted, a better title would be the Disciple's Prayer or the Model Prayer because other passages of Scripture actually record prayers of Jesus. But here, Jesus is giving us a model or a template for prayers. But he doesn't want us to just recite these verses, as wonderful as memorizing Scripture and reciting this model prayer are, but he's calling us to something deeper. He wants us to see the essence of prayer here, and he wants us to then actually pray pray. Remember, as we saw last week, Jesus isn't interested in vain repetition. He's not saying, repeat after me. Notice the key word here. Jesus says, pray like this, in this way, in this spirit, with this heart posture. And what does he say should mark our prayers? Well, first of all, we see that he's showing us our audience for prayer. We are praying to God. And you might be thinking, well, no, duh, Ricky. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? Of course prayer should be addressed to God. That's like prayer 101. But remember the problem Jesus just addressed in the previous passage. People were play-acting at prayer. They came with bowed heads. They closed their eyes, but their prayers weren't addressed to God. Not really, because they were using their prayers to perform before others, to look spiritual, to look righteous. But Jesus doesn't want us to just look righteous. He wants us to be righteous. And do you remember what it means to be righteous? It means to have a heart that is aligned with God. Therefore, Jesus wants us to see, first of all, this. Prayer is not a ritual to be performed, but rather a relationship to be pursued. It's not a ritual to be performed. It is a relationship to be pursued. Notice, first of all, how Jesus teaches us to address God. Not as high king of heaven, not as Lord Almighty, not as mighty God, though these are indeed appropriate titles for God, and you would be right to use them. But Jesus invites us to something deeper. He invites us to pray to God as Father, so prayer is first and foremost a pursuit of a relationship with God as Father. And this would have been counterintuitive to most Jews in Jesus' day. While it wasn't unheard of for a Jew to call God Father, it was certainly uncommon because Jews rightly understood that God was wholly other and infinitely higher than us. So they made sure to approach him with great reverence. And indeed, we should approach God with great reverence. Even here, Jesus doesn't just call God Father. He calls him Father in heaven. 
Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying that God is only in heaven. Indeed, Scripture says heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is not a place where God is not. Nevertheless, when Scripture speaks of God being in heaven, it is emphasizing how much higher and greater than us He is. Indeed, this idea is emphasized throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 15.11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Deuteronomy 33, 26, there is none like God. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. 2 Samuel 7, 22, there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 1 Kings 8, 23, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Psalm 97, 9, for you. You, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Jeremiah 10, 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. God is great. He is mighty. He is highly exalted. And Jesus does nothing to minimize this view of God by addressing God as our Father in heaven. Jesus may maintains the same Jewish emphasis on showing God's superiority and magnificence and transcendence. He wants us to see that God is holy. He is set apart. He is different from us. Indeed, God is greater and higher than us in at least two major categories. First of all, we are finite creatures, and he is eternal creator. Ecclesiastes 5.2, God is in heaven, it says, and you are on earth. Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Nehemiah 9.6, you are Lord. You are the Lord alone, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You, God is high. He is eternal. He is perfect. He is up higher than we can imagine. In contrast, listen to how scripture describes us. Psalm 103, it says, we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place knows it no more. James 4, 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Psalm 102.3, our days pass away like smoke. He is eternal. He is highly exalted. He is from everlasting to everlasting. We are finite. We are created. But we're different from him in another way. And that is that we are utterly sinful. He is completely sinless and good. Psalm 92, 15 says there is no unrighteousness in God. First John 1, 5, in him is no darkness at all. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible even for God to lie. In contrast, what does it say about us? Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
Who can understand it? Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, Among men, none is righteous. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. So we see we are fallen. He is flawless. We are finite. He is forever. So then, when we pray, there is absolutely a reverent recognition that as we approach the throne, you are God. I am not. I don't even deserve to be here. Who am I? Dust that I am wicked as I am to approach the throne room of God. See, the entryway to prayer, just like the entryway into the kingdom, is a spirit of humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Both in my smallness and in my sinfulness, I, like the psalmist, have to ask the God of heaven, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So we do not come into the throne room flippantly or disrespectfully. We do not take his name in vain. No, we see the sacred privilege that is before us. We know the other question the psalmist asks. We know the answer to that question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Listen, only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. But oh, we know we do not meet those criteria. We have lifted our soul to what is false. Our hands are unclean. Our heart is not pure. And yet, Jesus instructs us here to call this almighty, all-holy, all-knowing, all-righteous God of the universe, Father. How? How can that be? How can this be when I, who scripture calls a child of wrath and a child of devil, how can I dare call this holy God Father? Listen, it is only through the Son. See, left to ourselves, we could never approach God at all, much less as Father. We could only stand before him as a guilty criminal before a judge. But Jesus, the very Son of God, bore the wrath of God reserved for us in taking on flesh, becoming one of us. Jesus did what we failed to do. He perfectly obeyed the Father's will. He lived righteously and blamelessly before a holy God. And yet, this perfect, sinless Son of God, who was fully aligned with the heart of God, delighted to take on the sins of those who were unaligned with God, along with the punishment they deserved. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died in our place because the Father loved you. Because the Son loved you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the Son of God took all our sin and in return gave us all his righteousness. Indeed, by the Holy Spirit, all who have been born again, all who believe are unclean no more. You have been declared righteous through the righteousness of Christ. And more than that, your corrupted heart has been made pure. And oh, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. 
they shall commune with God. But if you think that's good, man, it only gets better. Not only will you see God, you will belong to God. Indeed, the Bible says you will be his child. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing and in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. In love, it says, he predestined us. For what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might, what? Receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, it says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so it says you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. Somebody get excited about that. Romans 8, 15. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom you cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And listen, fellow heirs with Christ. I mean, come on, church. Do you see the glory of this? You, who were once a child of wrath, are now a child of God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit. And you now pray not merely as a subject to a king. No, you pray to your Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Which means that though you approach the throne room with reverence and all, listen, you no longer need to come with fear and trembling. Because Hebrews 4.16 says that through the Son, we now as sons can approach the throne of God's grace with what? Confidence. Confidence. Why? Because through the Son, we are now sons. And when you're a son, you can approach your daddy anytime you want. As Pastor Tim Keller once put it, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child of the king. We have that kind of access to God. Indeed, just as a child, we recognize our need for our Father. Like a child, we depend on Him for everything. And we know we can bring any need we have. And just like a good Father, He delights in meeting that need. Listen, you don't have to beg and barter. You don't have to convince or cajole. You just have to ask. And He delights to answer. He delights to give. As Jesus is going to tell us later in the sermon in, in Matthew seven eleven, If you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him isn't that good to know this morning church listen do you see the importance of holding to both God's transcendence and his imminence that is his greatness and yet also his nearness listen because God is great we know in his omnipotence he can meet our need but because in his goodness he draws near to us we know he will meet our need indeed he delights to meet our need because we are his children because he is near I have access to bring him my request. But because he is great, I know no request is too big to ask. 
John Newton, most famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace, wrote another hymn about coming to God in prayer. Listen to what he says. He says, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Church, we come to prayer knowing we have access to God in heaven, the almighty king of the universe who can do all things, but who has also stooped down to us as father to give us all good things. And because he is father, he is willing. And because he is God, he is able. So church, I ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? The king of the universe is inviting you in, and you can talk to him as you would to a good father. Our father in heaven. So we see prayer allows us to pursue a relationship with God as father. But second, we see that not only is prayer about relating to God, notice another important word in this prayer. It is the word our. That is first-person plural pronoun, right? Notice every pronoun referring to humans in this prayer is likewise first-person plural. There's no me, my, or I in this prayer. And that is because prayer is not only a pursuit of a relationship with God as Father, it's also a pursuit of a relationship with one another. We don't just pray. It says we pray together. Christianity is fundamentally communal. We see this in the beginning with the Godhead. Long before the creation of the world, the triune God existed in eternal relationship with one another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in infinite communion. Love at the center of reality. And as his image bearers, we too are wired for community. Indeed, we're saved into community, the ecclesia, the church. That's why church membership is so important and vital for the disciple. Our pursuit of God was never meant to be me and Jesus. It was meant to be we and Jesus. It's, it's because God is our Father, then that would make us sisters and brothers. That's why the vertical pursuit of God inherently leads to the horizontal pursuit of one another. Because the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love our Neighbor, so inherent to the practice of Christian prayer then is self-denial. Not only do I deny myself in pursuit of God, but the way I pursue him is not through an individual effort. It is through a group effort. I enter into the communion of the triune Godhead, not as a party of one, but as part of the communion of the saints. The very people that he has saved for himself who are my brothers and sisters. Listen, there are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. If we are going to pursue God, we need each other. We can't do it without one another. To pursue God, we need to pursue him together. So we pray to God in heaven as Father, but not just Father. He is our Father. And in joining our hearts together to align them together with the heart of God, our Father, it is only then that Jesus instructs us to give our first request. And what is our first request? Our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed. Hallowed be your name. By referring to name, Jesus here is not just talking about a word. No, he's talking about what that name represents. A name represents a person. It represents God. Because naturally, when we hear a name, it immediately makes us think of the one that name represents. For this reason, parents put a lot of thought into what they are going to name their children, don't they? Because we associate certain characteristics with certain names. We want to make sure, among other things, that that name does not sound like other words. So they can avoid those playground taunts, right? 
Or how many times have you really liked a name until you met somebody who had that name, and now you're like, mm, nope, that name is officially ruined, right? Every time I think of that name, I'm going to think of that person, right? Or pop culture. Man, they love to ruin a perfectly good name. As someone whose mother's name is Karen, I feel for those people. <laughs> Names are important. They represent people. That's why God takes names seriously, and he takes his name seriously, because his name points to his glory, his goodness, his renown. That's why one of the Ten Commandments is, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And Jesus here, he teaches us to pray for that name to be hallowed. What is hallowed? Hallowed is just an old school word meaning make holy. Now if you stop and you think about it, you're probably thinking that seems like a strange request. Why would God tell us to pray for his name to be holy? We're asking God to make his name holy? Well, if his name represents him, then that seems kind of weird to ask God to make his name holy, doesn't it? Because isn't it already holy? Because he is holy? But listen, Jesus isn't asking God to turn his name into a holy one. No, he's asking God to show the holiness of his name, to make us aware of just how holy he is. In fact, many scholars hold that the phrase that appears in the next verse, on earth as it is in heaven, isn't just dealing with your kingdom come and your will be done. It's also dealing with Jesus' request here. In other words, he's saying, just as your name is acknowledged as holy in heaven, so let it be acknowledged as holy here. As Al Mohler pointed out, he said, Jesus is asking God to so move and act in the world that people value his glory, esteem his holiness, and treasure his character above all else. In other words, the primary desire of prayer is the glory and the fame of God. Jesus is teaching us here to pray that throughout the earth, God will be worshipped right here as he is in heaven. And church, we ask for this to be true, first of all, as the people of God. That God would show us his glory, make us aware of his holiness, and that we would respond in worship. That we would hunger and thirst for it as the Beatitudes teach us. That we would crave more and more of him. That we would seek to become more and more like him. In other words, inherent to this prayer is not only a desire to see and experience God's righteous glory, but also a desire to reflect. Let that glory into the world to be holy as he is holy. So we pray, God, let your name be seen as holy and held in esteem among your people. Church, can you imagine what that might look like if we just got a glimpse of his glory? How would we respond? We would see holiness in worship because there's no being ho-hum when you're worshiping a holy God. And we wouldn't just worship when we feel like it or when certain things mean our preferences. No, we would worship him because he is worthy. We worship him not just in how we sing. We would worship him in how we live. So holiness would be seen in our relationships. First John 4 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We'll see holiness in speech because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We would see holiness in body. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee sexual immorality because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says you were bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, it says glorify God in your body. Do you see? Having encountered the glory of God, the people of God should be marked by the holiness of God. 
So we have to ask ourselves, when people see our lives, do they encounter the goodness and the glory of God? That's what Jesus teaches us to pray here. He says, God, let the holiness of your name be evident in how I live. Let your goodness and glory be manifested through me in the places you've put me. In my home, in my school, in my office, on my team, in my neighborhood. God, hallowed be your name. Help me to pursue your holiness. Make me holy as you are holy. Show your holiness through me. Church, do you see what also then begins to happen here? As we seek to declare God's holiness with our lives, as we worship him with all our being, this zeal for God inevitably leads us beyond the walls of our church as we seek to lead others to come and to worship him as well. Why? Because I want his name to be hallowed. I want all people to see that he alone is God. So do you see, at the heart of this prayer is also a passion for missions. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, rightly asserted this. He said, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions, he says, exists because worship doesn't. Do you see what's going on here? Worship is the fuel of missions because as we experience the glory of knowing God, we want all people to experience the glory of knowing God. Likewise, worship is is the goal of missions. Why? Because we know there's only one way of salvation and his name is Jesus and we want all people to surrender and bow down and worship him as Lord and King. Therefore, to pray for God's name to be hallowed is a missional prayer. It is saying, God, I want all people to recognize your glory and renown. God, I want all people to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want all people to taste and to see that the Lord is good. I want all people to be reconciled to you indeed I want people from every tongue tribe and nation gathered around your throne one day singing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb joining with that ancient song of heaven worthy worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing oh to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever oh that the entire earth would be captivated by the splendor of his presence that the heavenly chorus of the angels would echo across every continent singing holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory because he is worthy his name is holy that is the desire of every disciple's heart and church if that's the desire of your heart That when you hear the Lord say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? How could you not say with the prophet Isaiah, here am I, send me. Because I know your name is holy. So I will take it to where it is not yet known. Until everyone sees, until every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether that's across the street or across an ocean. Until the whole world sees God that you are holy, we will be wholly devoted to go. Until your name is hallowed on the earth as it is in heaven. Indeed, until everyone has the chance to call you Father, we will answer the call to go and make you known. Because you alone are holy. You alone are God. You alone are seated above all thrones. You alone are worthy of our worship and praise. You alone are worthy of our lives. Oh God, worthy is your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name.
name. Will you say that with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. One more time like you mean it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfordchurch.org. Blessings.